0: For those of you who uh, are married, this question may or may not have come up explicitly, but it must have come up at least implicitly. I brought this question up to Tina while we were still dating and it was looking like it was going, you know, going closer to a decision about marriage. And I said something like, there may come times where we're at an impasse. You want to go that way, and I want to go this way. You see it this way, and I see it that way. Uh, you want to say yes, but everything inside me is saying no, or vice versa. I'm assuming most of the time, just through talking about it, massaging it, we'll come to the, the same answer together, through prayer through asking the Spirit to guide us, getting counsel from other married couples that are, have further down the path than us, or our friends at church, that kind of thing, that, that, that most of the time we're going to be able to come to a place where we have the same answer. But there are going to be those times where we just can't get past seeing things a little bit differently. In those situations... Who makes the call? And it wasn't a trick question. You know, I wasn't baiting her, like, see if you pass the test. You better say me or this isn't going to work. We were trying to work through that issue. Uh, We were trying to figure out what that looks like in a real marriage. So, how do you answer that question? You're in here, you're married. Or you think one day you might be married? How would you answer that question? Shy of an angel showing up in your window and saying, Thus saith the Lord. (laughs) Humanly speaking, you've got to find out what the answer is. What are you going to do? The deadline is coming up. Are you going to take that job and move the family? Or are you going to say no to that job and stay? You need to make a decision. But you're at an impasse. Who, Who makes the call? More importantly... How do you decide who makes the call? What are the reasons behind you saying who's going to make the call? Is it randomness? When it comes to that point, Pastor, we just do rock, paper, scissors. (laughs) Best out of three. Is it who's the most educated? Is it who's the faster talker? Is it, the, is it the one of the two couples that is most able to uh, argue their point clearly? That can talk circles around the other spouse? Is that the one that should make the call? Is it whoever's oldest? Whoever's youngest? How do you make that call? Well, different couples and different marriages or answer that question differently. And increasingly in this world and in this culture that we live in, the question becomes more and more meaningless because as we continue to smash the differences between husband and wife, flatten out the differences between male and female, we're losing what husband is, we're losing what wife is, we're losing what marriage is. So there's there's a ton of confusion out there. There's a lot to a lot of noise surrounding marriage and what it looks like, but the passage we 're going to look at this morning is clear. It is not easy it's not an easy pill to swallow it is not uh, a normal passage, especially because of the backdrop in which we're reading it we're reading it in a culture where increasingly certain individuals have a hard time deciding which locker room to change in, let alone who should take a lead in marriage. Now, we have two choices. We can go out there and just sort of, you know what? The Bible kind of gets old. The Bible kind of gets stale. Back then, they just succumbed to culture, and they just wrote to whatever the culture was doing at that time. And now, look, this is America. Look, you know, especially ever since the the big push in the 60s. I mean, women's rights and liberation and equality for all people and equality meaning nobody gets a preference, nobody gets to call a shot, everything is even, or we can allow the Bible to speak for itself and then we obey it or disobey it. So that's sort of a preface to turning to What many find to be a very controversial passage, a very difficult passage, but it's not controversial or difficult because it's confusing or unclear. It's difficult and controversial because of the culture we're in. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are in a place where they are being persecuted for their faith. They're being insulted for their faith they're being mocked for their faith they're being jeered, maligned, reviled uh, you you fill in the blank uh, a lot of words, hate, and it's increasingly becoming a physical persecution in their part of the world and under the Roman government. Then he talks about how we're supposed to live in that world, and that there are authority structures that God has put in place, or that God has allowed to be in place, and that we're to be subject to every human institution. In other words, every institution that God has allowed in terms of a hierarchy and a structure of authority, if you are under an authority, you don't say, that authority is not Christian, therefore I'm over that authority because I, I follow the true God. No, you submit to that secular government. You submit to that narcissistic emperor and his governors. Well, what if I'm a slave and I'm a master? God doesn't condone slavery, but in that situation, as you're awaiting the long-coming abolishment of slavery, you don't abolish slavery by choking your master to death and taking over. You submit. Then he moves to marriage. Now, government, slavery, and marriage don't all have exact parallels, guys. He's not saying the government makes you a slave, a master makes you a slave, and in marriage there's slavery. That's not what he's saying. The only parallel between the three is that there's a structure, and we're not supposed to flip the structure because someone on top isn't, isn't leading right. Remember that God is ultimately on top. He's ultimately in control. Leave avenging to him. In the meantime, obey, follow, take the lead of those that are over you in terms of an authority structure. Now, some of us don't see marriage as an authority structure, but Peter did. That's the only way to see it when you read the first couple of verses. He says, likewise. Why does he say likewise? He's tying it to the command in Chapter 2, verse 12, that we're supposed to live honorably amongst the Gentiles. How do you live honorably? Well, be subject to the governing authorities. If you're a servant in a household, a bond servant, be subject to those masters, even if they're cruel. And then in the context of a home, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, if you want to go home and Google the Greek behind be subject, and it's not really submit, it's more of a mutual understanding Good luck with that. It means obey. Again, grates our ears. Sounds so un-American. It sounds so oppressive, maybe. But it's what it says. It doesn't say husbands oppress your wives. But it says wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, it doesn't say all women be subject to all men. You walk outside and a man walks by and he's like, tie my shoe. No, this is not the husband that you chose. Not, not, not held a gun to your head and said, you will submit to this husband. Right? In our context, most of the time, you, you're choosing who you marry. Know that going into marriage, from God's perspective, there is structure. And when that impasse occurs, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Why? Well, he thinks of a scenario, the most difficult scenario, a wife that has to be subject to a husband that isn't even a believer. She knows more than him. She's been enlightened. He's still in the dark. What about that scenario, Peter? Surely I need to lead him. Surely I should take control of the finances. He's not going to tithe. Surely I should take over you know, what all our decisions are concerning the kids because I'm shepherding the kids spiritually and he's not. No, no. Even if, even if they're unbelieving. Look at what he says. So that even if some do not obey the word, you could probably put into that category someone who is a believer but just is Or says they're a believer, but they're disobeying. They're not following God's word. Even if some do not obey the word, wives, be subject to your own husbands. There's nothing in here about it being easy. Some people say, well, see, he's writing that because that was so easy back then. Was it? Why would he have to say it then? It's never been easy. This has never been easy. In fact, when you go back to the garden, as soon as sin entered the picture, the phrase that God used to warn Cain, sin is hiding and crouching and looking to pounce on you, but you have to master it. That same phrase he used when he pronounced judgment on Eve and said, from this time forward, the husband's going to be the leader, but you're going to seek to master him. Why is that a part of the judgment? Because that desire to not have structure within a marriage is a result of the fall. Just like thorns are a result of the fall. And just like man having to work, sweating, and toiling, and that work won't come easy, was a result of the fall. So it was never easy. This is easy in Peter's context. It wasn't easy in Rome, it's not easy in America. But this entire epistle, he's not calling anyone to do anything that's easy. He's saying, you're being persecuted. It's tough. Stick it out. Stand firm. You need grace from God for this to happen. That's why he spent the first chapter describing this awesome, secure salvation that God has provided for us. If you just cling to that, then you'll be able to endure what's difficult. And one of those things to endure that's difficult is being in a marriage and submitting to a husband who doesn't always have it right all the time, especially husbands who could care less about what the Word of God says. You don't come home from church and bash them over the head with the Bible. Submit. Now, I don't want to spend a long time here because we already created this caveat Three sermons ago and we talked about what about when ruling authorities, governing authorities pass a law demanding that you do something that God has clearly said you don't do. Well, then at that point, you don't do it. Well, same here. Husband tells you you, you cannot read the Bible. Burn all the Bibles in the house. No. That's not honoring to the Lord. But in so much as it's honoring to the Lord, you obey where the husband is leading. He says, look at what can happen. You have a husband who doesn't obey the word. They may be one without a word. He kind of does a little play on words there, right? They're disobedient to the word of God. So don't you think that they're going to listen from the word of wife? You can change them, but it's not going to be through lectures. Some of you have been in marriage long enough, understand that one already. I nag them to death. I don't get what's going on. Wait a few years, you'll get it. The nagging, the lecturing, the sermoning, the preaching, the leaving a devotional in his lunchbox, you know. Listen, that's not how he's going to budge. And this is what I think is great about this. Peter is not saying you can't influence your husband. You can't change your husband. Don't change him. Don't influence him. Don't try to work on him. No. By all means, make him your project. It's just not going to be through lectures. Because the word is not taking root in him. Well, if he's going to change, if he's going to be affected, how's it going to happen? He, He tells us how. Wives, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one Without a word. Well, then how? Well, by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Conduct there means lifestyle. It means your way of life. And when they notice how you carry yourself, how you respond to difficulties. Other women are catty and you're not like that. He notices how the wives of his other friends are always putting their husbands down when they get in circles and and that you don't. He picked up on that. There's a lot of gossipy stuff going on between the women and the wives of his friends. But you gracefully bow out. And even though you have the opportunity to throw him under the bus because he's not the greatest husband, you don't. That's the kind of conduct that catches a person's attention now just just like with the other situation right you know he says if you if you obey if you live honorably chapter 2 verse 12 if you live honorably the gentiles will notice and even the ones that are persecuting you they might notice how you behave under the pressure of their persecution and they might give glory to God they might change peter's just applying that principle here within a marriage it is not a guarantee that he will change don't any of you who are not married in here don't any of you go I'm going to marry him evangelistically. I'm going to marry him, even though he's a pagan, you know, uh, non-God-fearing man. But over time, I'm just going to, Valentine's Day is going to be awesome for him. I'm going to pack his lunch. I'm going to massage his feet. And then he'll give his life to Jesus. You're just going to make living, chapter 3, verse 1, a nightmare. Please find a wise man can, can, we, can we squash the stuff about, is he, is he hot? Is he tall? Does he match the silhouette of you know, the tall, dark, handsome, whatever? Can can we get to biblical qualifications? You remember when God passed over all of David's brothers? He passed over all of them. And everyone's confused. Even the prophet's confused. I was about to anoint this guy. Oh, it must be that guy. I'm going to anoint him. No, stop it. It's not him. And God get, tells them why. God doesn't look at external appearances like you guys do. I look at what's going on inside. That's what's beautiful. So listen to what Peter says. Don't let your adorning, verse 3, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. In God's sight is very precious. It might take forever for your unbelieving husband to pick up on how precious that is, but in God's sight it is very precious. This is imperishable beauty. It doesn't fade. It doesn't get old. This doesn't wrinkle. This doesn't get tired. This doesn't check out on you. This is a beauty that God instills in you because of the work he did in you in chapter 1 of this epistle. The secure salvation that he provided in you, that change that he made in you, that's what's beautiful. And if your husband's going to change, it's going to be because he sees that in you. It's not going to be because you downloaded a bunch of sermons from your favorite radio preacher and stuffed them in his car music player or whatever, you know. It's, it's going to be because he's watching you. And seeing that you're different, be because it's difficult to mistreat a woman, who even when she's mistreated, loves. He says, "Don't let your adorning be external." Now, I, you know, in our church, I probably don't have to go here, but I just want to put it out there. Literally, what Peter is saying. If you just look at the words, "Don't let your adorning, the stuff you wear, be external." Now, he's not saying don't wear external stuff. He's not saying don't wear clothes. Awkward, right? What is he saying then? See, because there are are denominations that use this verse to say women shouldn't wear colors. They shouldn't cut their hair. They shouldn't wear makeup. There should be nothing around your neck, nothing around your fingers, nothing dangling from your ears. None of that. And they use this verse to cite it. My response to that is, well, why do you stop there? Why are they wearing any clothes? He says, don't let your adorning be external at all. It's called missing the point. What is his point? His point is emphasis. Don't let the time that you spend, when you go, I want to adorn myself. I want my husband to see beauty. That emphasis shouldn't be external. That emphasis should be internal. I want my husband to notice me. Let me spend an hour doing makeup. No, I want my husband to notice me. Let me spend some time in prayer because the next time he says things that makes me remember that he's a jerk, I want to respond correctly and I need to spend time making sure that I can respond correctly in that situation. That's the emphasis. Also, I, I should throw out all my makeup. Hey, make your own decision, but let me let me let me say this: Some women, in the attempt to get their husband's attention to change their husband, to get their husband to to think about them, care for them, don't feel very confident in how they look, and so they spend a lot of time, a lot of money for treatments, products. Clothing. That's a woman that's focused on externals instead of focused on what is internal. That's first what pleases God. Second, that's the only way you're going to get to an unbelieving husband's heart, says Peter. Then you have women that know they look good, they know they look good. And they may be tempted to use that to manipulate their husbands. That's focusing on externals. You're not going to manipulate him into spiritual maturity by flaunting or taking advantage of your externals. You might even have a wife that goes, you know what, I could care less about externals. And it's, it's to the point where it's not just no makeup, it's almost borderline no hygiene. All right? Even though that's the opposite extreme, that's still someone consumed with externals. It's how much I don't wear. It's how much makeup I don't have. And then you start judging other ladies that do wear stuff and go, see, externals. No, you're external too because you think it's about what you wear or don't wear. Peter's point is not how much jewelry you should have in your box. Peter's point is not how many piercings, how many earrings can an ear hold. His point isn't colors, clothing. I mean, there are other places in Scripture we can go to about modesty, which is extremely important. But Peter's point is, where does your emphasis lie? Your emphasis shouldn't lie on what's external. The world does that already. All the billboards and the ads and everything, and you feel like you're constantly competing with that. Your husband might think that's what he wants, but God is telling you, ultimately, that is not what he wants you'll never be the most beautiful even if you were the most beautiful today tomorrow it will be someone else why do you think time magazine has to keep coming with the new top 100 most beautiful people list it keeps changing and it's not because the previous 100 died <laughs> we're fickle it is impossible to keep up with that standard you'll never look the way you looked when you first got married You'll never look like someone else that you think your husband might think is really pretty. And thank God that looks is not the route to influence your husband. He's a very visual being, though. He is. But God created him. God knows ultimately how we work. And God is saying, I've designed it. So that you can still have influence on him, but it's not going to be by taking over the marriage. It's going to be influencing him up, allowing him to see your conduct, your lifestyle, your behavior, and that God would use to make a change in him. And so when he says submit, there's still influence. There's still a way that you can affect your husband. So it's not submit the way children submit. Children submit in a different way to parents. Pick that up. Why? Because I said so. I'm your dad. I might explain why next time, but it's my prerogative whether I want to explain or not. That's parental authority. Hun. I don't know if this is the right time. Let me know if this is not the right time, but... Walking the hallway, I tripped on this thing. Is there a way I can help you to make sure things are out of the hallway? I'm totally making this up because Tina doesn't leave anything out. I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's different. She doesn't submit the way a child submits. She has influence over me. She can affect me. If I'm going to make a decision and she sees it a different way, I don't bulldoze that. I would be an idiot to do that because she's not a child. And she does affect the way I think, the way I feel. She has influence over me. In the point of those impasses, someone's got to make a call. The wife defers to the leadership of her husband. Not based on how spiritual he is. It's not based on education. It's not based on who's a fascist talker. It's based on God's command. So he wants wives to influence their husbands, but to do it his way and to respect his design. And you know, some people think, well, Peter's just succumbing to the culture here. One problem with that is that this isn't the only passage we have on marriage, right? You remember when Paul writes in Ephesians 5, he writes a similar thing, that wives need to submit to their husbands and husbands love their wives. And then he gives us the reason Paul gives us the reason in Ephesians 5, and I, I beg of you, please, if you've not looked into this, please go to Ephesians 5 and unpack that this week with your spouse. The reason he gives for it is creation. He goes back to Genesis. He doesn't go to culture. This is how things are done in Ephesus. Sorry. This is how God designed it. How did God design it? He designed marriage to be an analogy. Marriage is a picture. This is why God created marriage. The husband is a picture of Christ. And the the wife is a picture of the church. Paul makes that astoundingly clear in Ephesians 5. So if you are in a marriage where the wife is the picture of Christ and the husband is the picture of the church in terms of the wife leads and the husband follows, you're subverting God's design from the beginning. We love to rail against marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman. That's the design of marriage. That's like the very, very beginning. The design of marriage is for one man. To represent Christ in that household, to be a picture of Christ's nourishing, Christ's ministry, Christ's servanthood, and that she would be a picture of the church in submission and following and pure conduct. I would never make this up, guys. I'm as American as anyone in here. But it's scripture and it's clear and it's good. He moves on to say that Sarah is an example. He says verse 5, this is how for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, giving us a specific example now. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything, that is Frightening. Now, if any of you have been in the Old Testament recently, you go, Sarah? Really? <laughs> Is that our model? She's the one that's like, listen, this thing that God said, the promise, it's not going to happen. So why don't you sleep with the, the help, and we'll just get a baby that way. Then I'll take that baby and kick the lady out, and we'll just make this happen. Abraham goes, oh, okay. Sarah? Sarah wasn't perfect, and neither was Abraham. There are moments in that marriage where she made the decision, she made the call, and he followed, and it wasn't good. There are also situations there where Sarah makes a call, and Abraham's like, I'm not sure about that. And God is like, listen to her. She's got this one. Sometimes that happens. But the point that Peter's trying to make is, you, you remember, you remember when, when God called Abram and said, I want you to pack your bags and leave. I'm not even going to tell you where to go. You're just going to go. Yeah? Well, who followed? Sarah did. This is crazy. Where are we going? I don't know. Who is this God? I still have not the fullest understanding of that. All right. What promise did he make you? Oh, we're going to have nations. You know I'm old, right? Yeah, but that's what he said. All right, let's pack our bags. Now, we don't know how, did she object? Did it take a while for him to convince her? But it says God said go, and he went, and his family went with him. I mean, she followed. And Peter's saying, that, that's what I'm talking about. That's what, And he's pointing to the spiritual patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith. And then he says, this is how they did it. That's how you're supposed to do it. And then he says, you are her children if you were born a Jew. No. Spiritual. How do we know? You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In other words, this is scary. Submit to a husband, even if he's immature. Ugh. Submit to my husband, even if he's not even saved yet. You know? Ah. Submit to my husband, even though he's just he's just a jerk. I, I don't know if I could do that. Well, that's frightening, but don't fear that. Follow what God is telling you. Follow God's plan. Stay the course, even if it's tough. And if you do that, you're Sarah's great grandchild. That means you're one of the faith. Now that now that's really interesting. I'm gonna unpack that because if that didn't just blow you away, it should. Peter's saying, you are of the faith if you submit to your husband in marriage. That's a conditional sentence. You want to know if you're of the faith? Do you submit to your husband? Ah, No, he's an idiot. You might not be of the faith. I don't know any other way to read that. There's two ways to read this. Either the way you submit to your husband in marriage, if you do it, then you'll be a child of the faith? I don't think that's what he's saying. It would completely contradict his first whole chapter and a half, that you don't do anything to become a child of the faith. God does it. Everything you do is a result of faith, not to get faith. So here's how he means it. If I tell you, you're a seamstress, If you sew and work with fabric and thread, that doesn't mean, oh, let me go get fabric and thread at Joann's, and I guess I'm a seamstress. That doesn't work, right? You know what I mean. What I mean is, you might say you're a seamstress, but if you never sew anything, and you don't work with fabrics, and you don't know what patterns look like, I've got news for you. You're not a seamstress. I'm a backpacker. Man, I'm an avid backpacker. Oh, yeah? What kind of backpack do you have? I don't have one what trails have you hit? Trails? It's cold outside. (laughs) You're not a backpacker. You can call yourself a backpacker. You can show up to backpacker meetings. You can have an REI membership card. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. You don't do what a backpacker does, right? Therefore, you're not a backpacker. What's Peter saying? That what you do in marriage earns salvation? No, he's saying if you're really saved, this is how you roll that out in a marriage. And in fact, only safe people can do it. How how in the world can you do this stuff that he's asking people He's asking he's asking wives to submit their husbands even if they're not worthy of being a leader. He disobeys the word. You submit. Now this is not about abusive situations. He's not talking about uh, you know, he he um he completely uh asks you to do things that are completely against uh, God's clear revealed will. Uh, th- there are times where separation is necessary, a timeout is necessary, intervention is necessary. Peter's not unpacking all of these details. He doesn't even give us examples necessarily of what submission looks like. He's kind of like, here's the principle, the, u- the universal principle of submission figure it out. But don't erase it. Figuring it out in the, in the practicalities of everyday life doesn't mean forget the principle. Boy, sometimes I wonder if I should divide a a passage into two sermons, you know? There's just so much here. But we have our growth groups and there's more time to unpack this in growth groups. He turns his attention. He turns his attention after explaining that this is so important. This is so important that how you live out submission in marriage is proof positive of your faith in Christ. Then he turns his guns to husbands. Now you might go, look at how many verses he gave to wives and then one little verse to husbands? Like we get off easy. Allow me, allow me for a second to submit this. Part of why she needs six verses is because we dropped the ball. It wouldn't be that hard to do what he's asking women to do if we stepped up. If I took a basic Bible quiz and gave it to the average church couple, on average, don't answer this out loud, on average, who do you think would know more theology, the husband or the wife? Wives read a lot. In this church even, who most comes up to me and tells me about their devotions? Who most comes up to me and tells me how they've attacked that reading list that we put online? Who most comes up to me and tells me, I missed that sermon, but I downloaded it and I listened to it. Great stuff, Pastor. It's the women. And so if God were to say, look, whoever's wisest in the marriage, lead. Well, then probably most of us will be following our wives. But what God is saying is, I don't want, I don't want that to be the determination of who leads in a marriage. It's going to be the way God designed it. And if you feel like you're a couple steps behind your wife, don't slow her down, speed up. Find ways to start maturing. Find ways to start matching the leadership that God has placed in your lap. He says, likewise, in other words, this also applies to husbands, not to submit, but to understand what the structure looks like. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Boy, I want to wrap this up as quickly as I can, but I don't want to just do a drive-through on, on chapter 3, verse 7, because I think this is key to all of this. Clearly, he's not addressing the unbelieving husband. He's addressing, he's addressing believing husbands here. Unbelieving husbands wouldn't even wouldn't be listening to this in a church gathering in Peter's day. But husbands, those of you who do obey the word, those of you who do follow the Lord, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally live with your wives according to knowledge. Not just knowledge of her, but knowledge of how God wants this thing to go. And how does He want it to go? He wants you to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, not weaker education wise. Not not weaker emotionally, just in, gen, in a general sense, women are physically weaker than men. Just brute strength speaking. I don't, I don't, after the service, and know you're going to quote me, you know, when women go through labor, it's 20 times the pain of a Marine going through, a, you know, whatever. I, I understand that. I understand that. Don't read too deep into what Peter's saying. That every woman everywhere is always weaker than every man you can come up with. No. Just in the general sense, the general sense, it, does, it doesn't even take a biblical mind, right? You got the NBA, the WNBA, why don't they just put them all together? There's differences. Okay. Now, his point is not have pity on her. She's so weak. That, that's not what he's trying to get at her. Remember imperishable beauty? That's the train of thought. Now, you have this v- fragile, valuable in your house. And because it's fragile, do you throw it away, kick it around, mistreat it? No, 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 the opposite. You handle it with care. It's precious. And so you're careful how you handle her. You're careful how you adjust her. You're careful how you lead her. You handle her with care. Not because she's weak emotionally or weak spiritually, but just because She's supposed to feel comfortable under your wing. She's supposed to feel like you're a person that can teach her, lead her, nourish her. And you do that with care, like a shepherd. You don't do that like a brute. And then he says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. If you have any question about equality between a woman and a man, there it is. This has nothing to do with inequality. This has nothing to do with inferiority. I'll give you two examples of that. Jesus Christ, eternally God, fully God. Correct? We've got our doctrine right, right? The doctrine of the Trinity. It's clear that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Yet Jesus submits to the Father. The Father wants him to submit. Jesus wants to submit. The Holy Spirit facilitates the submission. Is Jesus less than the Father? No. Because then we'd have to reverse the first statement we said, that He's fully God. A couple weeks ago, I gave an example of leaving my house and leaving one of the siblings in charge of the other siblings. You're in charge while I'm gone. While I'm gone, you all are obeying this one. When I do that, am I saying, this person I'm choosing to be in charge of the rest of you because this person is higher value to me than the rest of you? Of course not. I have my reasons for putting a particular child in charge of the other children while I'm away from the room or away from the house. But it has nothing to do with equality. I don't pick and choose who's my favorite. I pick and choose according to another structure. And in this particular context, God is choosing according to a structure that he designed. Now, if if you just can't get over this and you're not married, well, maybe just hold off. On marriage, but if if you're looking into marriage or you're in marriage, this is the design, and it has nothing to do with inequality. We are completely equal. Men and women were both made in God's image, Genesis one. In Christ, there is no male or female, Galatians three. That doesn't mean there's no gender; it means there's equality. And so, in this passage, he makes it really clear what he wants the structure to look like. And if you don't do it, men, if you don't care for her well, men, if you don't honor her well, men, then you can't lead her. Because in order to lead her, you need to be in line with the ultimate shepherd, who's Jesus Christ. You need to be in communication with the Father, who's ultimately your leader. And if you're not caring for your wife, He's not going to listen to you. When you ask him for something, he says, "Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered." And so husbands have the responsibility to leave their household, to lead, not leave many men are good at that to lead their households well, to care for their wives. To honor, cherish, protect, nourish, edify, minister their wives. One pastor put it this way uh, if the husband represents Christ and the church represents and the wife represents the church, the church does serve Christ, but they never outserve him. We can never outserve Christ. No matter what sacrifices you make, you'll never match the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. And husbands, that's what we're supposed to do in leadership in the house. That doesn't mean we're subservient. That means we're servants, and there's a difference. I'll close with this. We remember in the previous paragraph, the last sermon from last week, the last paragraph of chapter 2, Peter made it really clear that the only way we can do any of this stuff is if you're in Christ. The only way you can do any of this stuff is verse 24 of chapter 2. He bore your sins so that you can die and live to righteousness. If you're not in Christ, you can't do it because you're still a slave to sin. But if you're alive to righteousness, He gives you the ability to do the kind of stuff that Peter's asking you to do. So as difficult as this sounds, as difficult as this is, It's possible. It's doable in Christ. You're you're healed from his wounds. What does that mean? It means you've given a new slate, a new lease on life. You're a new creation. And now you can live the way he's asking you to live. And he's modeled it. It's difficult. It's difficult. I have every ability to completely tell him off. Jesus had the ability to tell off Pontius Pilate, and he didn't. That's his point at the end of chapter 2. Christ is our pattern. Christ is our model. We model our lives after Christ. And so you don't treat your husband according to your education level. You don't relate to your husband according to who's the smartest, who's the fastest, who's the wisest, the smartest, the most spiritual even. You're thinking, God first. What's precious in God's sight? What is the design that God has supplied? And we follow that.